Welcome to the Error Term. This is Jim Savage. Shoshi Vass. And Emma Solberg. Today we're going to be talking about latent data. Uh, over the last week, uh, Amos, Josh and I data. were discussing what we should talk about. And in the last podcast, we um, brought up the fact that Donald Trump had maybe done something that no one had done before and played to a part of the preference space that had not been played to. So Shosh, you do a lot of this. Can you tell us something about these models? Well, wait a second. When you say play to the preference space that somebody else that nobody else had, I think what you, I mean, another way of saying that would be was appealing to voters who feel left out of the system, which is the conventional interpretation. So as an introductory question, what would an economic approach and a statistical approach to this question do to elucidate it beyond that sort of wordy approach of saying he appeals to folks who felt left out? I don't know if that's more wordy than not. More, more wordy, less mathy. More, more wordy, less mathy. The, the general idea is to think about the, the people that are left out are people who were demanding something on the political spectrum. So let's say that uh, politicians have a range of properties that, that they offer people. Some are more charismatic, some are more wise, some are more progressive in their social policies or their economic policies, etc. Um, and con- consumers or voters in this case can always make a choice based on the options available to them. They can choose, say, Hillary Clinton, or they can choose, say, Ted Cruz, or they can choose to abstain and not choose anybody at all. Are you talking about like building predictive models that predicts a, a vote, given what the kind of properties of the voters are or the properties of the candidates, sorry? Yeah, I mean, voting is is a a really hard application because there's so much heterogeneity between candidates. When you say that it's a hard problem, (laughs) uh, I I think 538 showed recently, 538.com, shortly after the election, showed that the entire vote was something like 90% explainable by four variables, by race, by gender, by... uh, whether you were in, by how often you went to church and whether you graduated from college. And that accounted for 90% of the variation in voting Mm -hmm. between counties. That's right. And that's consistent with what we talked about last week. That's right. Which is Cambridge Analytica had tried to, had claimed to be able to use psychometric profiling to predict voting behavior, but it turned out that their predictions were not any more accurate than the Republican Party's traditional methods, which in, in traditional voting statistics, voting prediction, those traditional methods are race and gender and income and whether or not you went to college and how often you go to church. Sure. And when we look at this ex post, it seems really easy to say this is a demographic outline. But what makes it hard is that we, it's not really clear what the mapping between those four categories and a candidate like Donald Trump really was. What, what is it about that combination of factors that made them prefer Trump to, to Hillary or, or to the other Republican contenders in the primaries? It's hard because Trump looks very different from a lot of the candidates that we've had before. So how do we know what explains the preference for these particular qualities? And how could we have known? Could we have somehow predicted it before seeing a candidate like Trump? Could we have, could we have said prior to the election what would really work is a candidate that looks like Trump, right? We want to say not just who will people vote for given a set of options, but what option will cause people to want to come out and vote for him. Right. So the, the, thing, the thing is, when, you, when you're only looking at demographic factors as a predictor for who someone's going to vote for, what you're essentially saying is that 
we've got some demographic factors and, and we have some mapping between those demographic factors and the probability you're going to vote for each candidate. But we're not taking into account there any information that differs across the candidates. And so I think one of the things we want to talk about tonight was this possibility that maybe people um, decide based on information that does not change about the candidates, that is their demographics, and information that does vary across the choices. So their, their individual properties of, the, of those choices or the properties of the candidates, whether they're conservatives or whether they're crazy racists or, or whatever. Well, let me try to let me try to explain why this is so hard with voting by going to a more standard example. Suppose we were trying to predict what kinds of soda people are going to buy. So you like you go to the supermarket and you know that there's always like your five different sorts of Coke and your four different sorts of Pepsi and your Sprite and your ginger ale and whatever else. Right. These sodas have been around for a long, long time, and we've seen lots of consumer data. In fact, you can buy the, this like massive scanner data and see how people decide in every county in the U.S. over the last 20 years, given the range of prices, how they make th- their decisions and which sodas they buy and when. If you wanted to predict, say, how much consumption for a new brand of Coke would go up, say you wanted to introduce Coke strawberry. You could have a pretty good idea of of what demand would look like because you could just model Coke strawberry as a variant of Coke cherry and you you could you've seen how how many people buy how many people bought Coke cherry when it came out etc. right? The reason is that they're very very similar. You know a lot of people who drink strawberry flavored soda? <laughs> well, I'm I'm making an assumption here. <laughs> <laughs> about the similarities between Coke cherry and, and Coke strawberry. And the reason I could make that prediction pretty well is exactly that, right? I think Coke cherry, Coke strawberry would be really, really similar to Coke cherry. The kinds of people who would buy it would be the same kinds of people who like fruity Coke, who prefer Coke to Pepsi, who are expecting to pay a slight premium for a new flavor of Coke and have expressed a preference for going away from the standard, right? I know who these people are and I know roughly how many of them there are because I've seen patterns of consumption behavior that are very, very similar that I can sort of reliably say uh, are going to be predictive. So I imagine that if Coca-Cola came to me and asked me what the expected revenues would be from introducing Coke strawberry, I could give them a pretty, a, a pretty good answer that I'd be pretty confident in. But suppose instead they, they came to me with this whole weird new product. Vegemite. Uh, Coke. Veg, Vegemite Coke. Vegemite. <laughs> Coke Vegemite. Uh, like... So now, how in the world would I would I know uh, how much how much how much Coke Vegemite people would buy? It's now really hard because I don't have a direct analogy. Australians eat Vegemite with anything, right? I mean, I guess I could say Coke Vegemite is kind of like Coke Cherry, <laughs> but far worse. <laughs> but let's be real. So, so uh, a, a good little uh, <laughs> side story in Australia, where as you may recognise, I'm from. Um, there's a chocolate company, uh, big global company called Cadbury. And they worked out that Australians love chocolate and Australians also love, um, love Vegemite. And so they, they decided to combine the two and for about half a year or something, they had this terrible product, which was Vegemite mixed with caramel inside chocolate. Oh, <laughs> and it was oh, God. as though you might expect. Not a very good seller. Well, so... But this is not to say that the initial idea or the premise was especially flawed. I mean, so you've got those um, great stories coming from Net- Net- <laughs> Netflix coming out with Netflix coming out with House of Cards after realizing there's some uh, people who are into Kevin Spacey are into like political thrillers or or uh, the, uh, 
there's a show on Netflix that is trucks and dinosaurs. I think it's called Dino Trucks because I realized that the same people who watch cartoons about trucks also watch cartoons about dinosaurs. You can kind of, you can blend things uh, within reason once you recognize that there is a correlation in taste. Um, now, how does, this, how does this map back to someone like Trump, though? So, in what, so, so the point I was trying to make was, if, was sometimes we can make predictions out of sample, out of, out of context for new products based on just the data we have because the new product is similar enough. But when it's pretty different, we want to understand how different it is because we want to know if Coke Vegemite is going to be successful because it's going to get the people who like new stuff, new stuff, but not necessarily fruity flavored Cokes. Right, those are different groups of people with some intersection, maybe, but but overall, but not perfect. I want to get, I want to know how many people like like new stuff enough to try Coke Vegemite itself. In order for me to do that, I can't look at Coke Vegemite just as a standalone thing that looks like Coke Cherry. I need to break it down into its characteristics. So its characteristics might be like novelty product, niche, Australian, <laughs> right? Like a variety of different of different characteristics such that every product on the market, every type of Coke and every type of pep- Pepsi and Sprite will can be described as a set of properties, each of which we expect consumers to have some preference over. So if we instead think of consumer preferences based on these characteristics, then that's the latent variable that we want to estimate. If we can estimate what what degree of preference there is for each characteristics and how they and each characteristic and how they correlate with each other, then we can predict how a new product with a new set of characteristics that we hadn't seen before in our data, for example, Coke Vegemite or Coke Kangaroo Piss or <laughs> Coke Triple Cherry Chocolate Cake would fare. Because now... You and I have been working on a technique to try and estimate this from, from data. Can you give us... I mean, you're better at explaining things. You do this as a job. Um, I just build models. Can you give some insight into how it works? All James and I do is actually build models that do things. Shush also has to explain them to students. I will have you know, I build my own share of models and do not explain them to my students, not for lack of trying, (laughs) but because they've made it clear that they are not interested. (laughs) Very good. (laughs) So I told you a bit before that the whole premise of the kinds of economics that I do and the kind of modeling I do is based on revealed preference. The idea is if you have the option of A, B, and C and you choose A, it means you most you preferred A more than B. Now, this time, now suppose A and B, let's forget about C just to make things easier. A and B now have different characteristics. A, well, okay, yeah. A is uh, uh, black and B is white. But a but otherwise A and B are the same. They're let's say Skittles or something. Skittles, yes. We have black Skittles and white Skittles. Now, if I see you buying a lot of A and not B, then that means that you prefer A, which means you prefer black Skittles. So now if I'm interested in predicting uh how much you would prefer or how many people would prefer a black M&M to a white M&M. I could base that off of the off of the distribution of of people, let's say demographics uh, or whatever, of people who preferred the black skittles to the white skittles when offered the choice. What we do is a step beyond that. We say you you might prefer black skittles to white skittles when they cost the same amount of money, but say black skittles are special, 
So they've got a, a premium. They're they're new. Black Skittles cost ten dollars or ten cents more. <laughs> ten dollars, ten cents more than white Skittles. What we observe in the data is that as the price changes, typically the amount of people who buy black Skittles that, rather than white Skittles will change too. What that means is that they're responsive to price and in a heterogeneous way. At When black Skittles are five cents more expensive than white Skittles, let's say 10% less people buy them, etc. I guess I guess one of the one interesting things about this method is that we might see two goods that are otherwise very similar. They could differ in, in some aspects, but you'll see one good be more expensive and have way more sales. And that's really where this kind of, this latent factor approach comes in. So one of the things I thought we could talk about tonight is the concept of synthetic data. When we've had our previous podcasts, you've asked me a lot of questions about where we get our data from for NLP. And part of the answer to that, because we do have needs for, for very large amounts of data, is that when we're training neural networks, we often use what we call synthetic data, which is that we will actually create data, which we then feed into our training. And we do that. Now, Shoshana, I can see over the video, is has a look on her face as though I've just slaughtered small animals. And my question for each of the two of you was, would you ever, under what circumstances do you think that this is acceptable? Is this something you would ever do in your practices? Uh, what's your view on the concept of using synthetic data to train a predictive model? So when you say synthetic, are you trying to learn about whether the model works or are you, are you as in your estimation model? Or, so, I mean, I, I would say, so I've got this kind of little hobby horse we would never use it for testing data. We would use synthetic data, add synthetic data to our training set, but our testing set would continue to be, except in very rare cases, the test set would be actual data that was found in the field. But Amos, in what way is, is adding some synthetic data to a training set different from having a prior? It seems like you're just including a prior in, a, in an indirect way. Before you get to that, could you explain exactly what you mean by, are you feeding only synthetic data to your model or are you taking your regular data and then maybe making some changes to it and then feeding it to the model? Or what's happening here? Can you explain the process? Uh, I, I really mostly the second one. And I think that you've both just hit the nails on the head, I think. And uh, you know, I'll tell you my view about this later on, but I'll give you some examples about how we might use synthetic data. When we're training a neural network to predict on images, one of the things that we'll do with our data, we'll take our, our data from the field and we might add a Gaussian layer of noise. We might randomly change some pixels uh, by a couple of percentage in each direction. Uh, we might take the image and crop it. We might take the image and move it left, right, rotate it a few degrees each way. And what that does is for images, we know, because what we're trying to do is recognize, is train an image recognition, we know that these changes have created new images where the th signal, which we can see as humans in the data, that signal is still present. Right, so this is kind of like denoising de or something? Well, we, sometimes, you know, it's, that was one of the things is, uh, uh, that I was curious about would be how it is that you think of this. Sometimes we consider this regularization. Sometimes we call it regularization in neural networks. <clears throat> Sometimes we call it uh, creating synthetic data. Sometimes we call it data set augmentation, which is an interesting little euphemism. 
Um, sometimes the way that I like to think of it is that we know things that are in the that that we would like to force to be invariants. We would like to force the center of the image field to be invariant. We would like the recognizer to be indifferent to whether we shift to the left or the right. And so we take the data and create additional data to try and teach it that indifference, mm. to try and focus it on the signal that we wanted to learn. Um, but in text, well, you could see why that might be trickier to generate text that doesn't that, that preserves the original signal and only wipes out the noise that you want to be invariant. And the question that I've had, and this is something that we've talked about a number of times, uh, you know, in, in my practice with folks at work, is how can we do this, as Shoshana puts it, without simply replicating our prior and copying it into the training data? Mm. Well, what's the, or, well, hold on. What's the problem with copying a prior? I mean, you're not adding new information if you're already accounting for a prior somehow in estimation. But there's not there's nothing wrong with using with including the information you have about what the image should look like or the text should look like. Well, I mean, that's sort of the, you know, right. if we're trying to detect something, we're training a model and the features, the input features of the model are words in a sentence, but we are hoping that the model is going to detect some latent variable, that it's going to learn from those features and from the labels, something latent that it can to, to figure out from the text, like, is this person acting suspicious? Is this person being honest? Is this person dishonest? And that's what we're trying to to predict, or we're trying to. That's part of what we're trying to predict. And if we're synthesizing data, how do you synthesize? If you're synthesizing data to do that, how do you do that in a way where you're training your model to detect that late thing, and you're not just training your model to detect whatever distribution you fed into it when you created the synthetic data? But that that sounds like exactly the problem or the 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 trick to working with a prior. What you're describing is essentially is is your prior too strong is, or or does it have enough flexibility to allow for you to pick up the thing that you're interested in and it's sort of a question of what you're looking for right if your if your prior puts a really really high weight on things that you're on behaviors or or words or phrases that you're going to interpret as not suspicious then you're biasing your results to to make things look unsuspicious right so for example um I, what I have in my mind when you when you described what you uh, what you just did, I would think maybe I don't know your your training data might have your synthetic training data might have uh, corrections for misspelled words in various ways or like sentence structures to try to interpret what they mean. Uh, and the sentence structures that are produced, let's say if you have th uh, three words that don't quite make sense, like uh, cat house are under right you might take that uh and and tell the computer that if you see cat house under you it probably means cat under house and not anything else and so if your model says that sentences that are grammatically correct are unsuspicious then of course you're biasing things um but then in, that's something that you knew going in right well well that, that's the thing i mean it's interesting you, you said two things there that i think are really interesting and one of the things that you talked about was spelling errors. And, and today you had texted me a paper about the quantification of different kinds of spelling errors. And my first reaction when I got that paper mm -hmm. was, and this is how why I'm bringing this up today. One of the things that I'm uh, working on is how to deal with you know, text that's, that's chat, instant messages, where there's lots of grammar, there's lots of spe spelling errors and so forth. 
And what I was thinking of when I got that paper was, great, I can take this and I have a statistical distribution and I can use this distribution to perturb real data and add spelling errors that are going to be consistent with what we would see mm. in the field. And, and and I thought that that's a valid thing. Okay. But then I thought, but this other thing of, so I have 5,000 emails, 1,000 of them are tagged as suspicious in some way, and I'm trying to teach a model that's going to generalize and be able to find new things that are suspicious in different ways than the training data is suspicious and that the test data set is suspicious. Is there a way, can I create synthetic data that is going to allow the model to generalize into that? Or can, can I do this without having... But what does suspicious mean? Well, let me express it. I mean, maybe, maybe, you've, you, maybe you've got it. Maybe the answer is that you can only do this, you can only use synthetic data when you have a strong prior. And if you don't have confidence in your prior, if you don't have confidence in a, in a prior distribution over the field, then you can't add synthetic data. Uh, yeah, but how? why would you ever create synthetic data if you didn't have a strong prior? I would say, Amos, that, that maybe it's worth thinking about things a bit more generatively. And what I mean by that is that you should have some model that can potentially generate the data that you do observe. Now, if, you, if you're observing a whole bunch of spelling errors or whatnot, then that needs to be a part of the generative model itself. And, and really, I'll say 50 or 60% of the papers I see up on archive um, are really just kind of these ad hoc sort of like fixes and hacks, that sort of thing, in order to get uh, models to do what they should be doing if the modeler had thought deeply about the generative structure. Um, and, and look, I've been guilty of this myself. I've built so many kind of ad hoc little fixes and tricks and that sort of stuff in order to make models behave nicely. But in the end, it's it's kind of stepping back from just high-quality modeling, which is what we should be doing. Well, see, this is interesting that you say that. I was thinking about this in the context of what you discussed last time as model identification. And it seemed to me that model identification, it strikes me as this sort of generative concept where you're creating, you're, you're imagining and deciding what you expect the model to be, and then you're effectively, you're testing it. And by testing it, what, what you call identification, you're applying it to data, you're determining what the coefficients are, um, and you're testing it to see how well the structure you designed with those coefficients fits, fits your data set. And I think that's what you were calling identification, right? Not, not quite. So, so it's not just fitting the data set, but it's also, it, I mean, you're trying to identify some, some model of which there might be many, many models that could equivalently or provide a similar um, explanation of the data. And each of those models would have different uh, qualitative implications for what happens in your system. But, but you've picked that model to begin with. No, like no, you've no, selected it, what you think the right, model is right, going but, to be. But even within that model, it's a very, let's say you've got a fixed model, you might have a whole bunch of different um, combinations of parameters that results in a similar explanation of the data. But with each of those sets of parameters, um, it might have very different qualitative conclusions for what we think the impact of a price change would be or what we expect the impact of fiscal policy to be. Okay, so it's not really identified. The, the economic problem is not identified. And so we really need to try and pin down which of those competing uh, sets of parameters which provide equal support for the data um, is, is more plausible um, given what we know about the world. And that's the process of, of identification. It's, it's really pairing back uh, many, many different potential 
generative processes, even of the same functional form. In the kind of modeling that I'll do, and sometimes the modeling, sometimes we have few layers and, and the model is effectively linear, and sometimes the model has many layers and it may be very complex, it may be convolutional, it may have uh, be a deep neural network. The modeling style is very different. We'll, the decision-making that we'll make going in, we'll have some control over the features, but the features, we'll control them by saying the features are going to be, for example, every triplet of characters in this document. Mm. We won't go into, you know, put greater or generally don't put greater discrimination than mm. that sort of thing. Or they might be, you know, the adverbs or what have you. And we'll make a decision. We'll say, we want to have the second layer have a thousand units and the third layer have 30 units and the fourth layer be recurrent. And then we'll press go. Right, right. And we'll see what comes out. And the hope is that that by giving it enough data, that many of the, those coefficients are going to be pressed down to zero because all of the ones that are relevant will be pressed down to zero. And what you'll have at the end is a model that, when tested on out-of-sample data, predicts accurately. Right. And so, I mean, so I guess this, this really gets to the real nub of why I don't work in the whole deep learning space. I mean, I, I, have, a, <laughs> I have a lot of um, faith that... Oh, now it comes down to it, right? <laughs> the, the, a lot of these sort of models can be hugely practically powerful. And yet a lot of it does seem like there's kind of like tricks and, and kind of not particularly theory-based hacks that people make in order to have an output of the model that is, is useful. And that's not a bad thing. I don't think that's a bad thing at all. Yet there are a whole bunch of questions in the world. I'd say the real value that um, data scientists can add is to think in a model-based way such so, so that we can add a lot of value. And I think the single biggest rule of thumb or the single most important rule of thumb a, that I would teach to any young modeler who's trying to build a career in this space is to build models that could potentially, that you could simulate them. That is, they're generative models. You can simulate these models. And when you simulate them, they generate data that look like data that you uh, feed them in reality, the data that you observe. And if you can't do that with a model, it means you're not, you've not thought about the problem deeply enough. Um, which is not, I'm not trying to disparage like the sort of modeling that a lot of you know, really cool people do. Yes and no. I mean, I think you're sort of missing the point of how deep learning works, right? Like think about, I'm not, I'm not really sure how it works with NLP, but think about uh, a robot learning how to play Go, like an AI learning how to play Go or like one of those Atari games, right? It's true that it, you could try to do it generatively. So building a model for Atari play generatively well, a lot of these means, are, uh, me means quite unquote generative models. Well, sort of, right? But like, if you wanted to, to, there's a difference. If you wanted to, to build an Atari estimator um, generatively, what you would do is you would have to specify what an outcome means, right? You'd have to write out some sort of model for the physics in the game or how the physics in the game might interact with the score or how any particular action would, co would cause something. In You'd also have to have some model for how the pixels that you're seeing, because your input field are actually in a video game are going to be the pixels how those pixels are going to come from the physics. Mm. Right. And and the point is that it's very hard. And and I think one of the big victories or the, sort of the beauty of deep learning is that you don't have to do that. The computer can learn things that are really difficult for you as a human being to model. Yeah. And it's definitely a different kind of problem 
but we know that it's effective because the the computer is basically doing a really, really rudimentary version of what you would be doing. Rather than having to figure out the laws of physics, it, do, it does reinforce a sort of reinforcement learning type of technique where it tries out a zillion things and by Something brute work, force yeah. figures out figures out how things work right it's just a bottoms-up approach yeah um, that, that's how which, i that's how i learned data science as well i was i was basically <laughs> a monkey at a keyboard a monkey at an r script but so, so it, it sounds like the answer is james you would never do this because you feel that this is cheating shosh you you want to be a synthetic data you would never use synthetic data james because you feel that this is cheating you're getting away with avoiding the hard work of making the model and shosh you might do it but you're reluctant to do it, and you would only do it if you had a strong prior going in. That's fair. So, to be honest, I have used a lot of this in the past. So, I think one of my the first techniques that I came up with was uh, some, true confessions of a Bayesian. Yeah, well, I'm, well, this is true confessions of a a person who stepped way back from that generative uh, frontier. Uh, for my master's thesis, I I built this technique which um, did the following: you you would building a time series model. And let's say you're working in trading or risk management or something and you have to generate week ahead predictions. So how many um, withdrawals are we going to have from this account this week? And that, that varies over time. So you're trying to build these predictive models. Now, the really big question for these people building these models is uh, how much history should I train my model on? Should I look at the last six months, last 12 months? Should I have three years of data? Should I have 30 years of data? I've got all this data. How much of it should I use? And part of the problem with these is that if you train them on only a, a small period of data, then sure, you're learning about what, how customers or people are behaving right now, maybe, but maybe there's useful information in what happened beforehand. Similarly, if you uh, put in all of your data, you're going to learn about what happened on average over that entire period, but people might change their behavior over time so that the underlying model is, is kind of not stationary. So the technique I kind of came up with was what if we were to find periods in history that are similar to period to today and we'll give those uh, periods excess weight okay so i'm going to actually give those periods more weight now the question is how do you come up with weights how do i know what what period of history is is similar to today should i just look at all the covariates and create some metrics some distance between today and his historical periods like you know, what are, the, what are the other periods with unemployment like this? What are the other, other periods with interest rate like this? And it turns out that's a really silly thing to do um, because sometimes unemployment matters. Sometimes the interest rate matters. Sometimes government spending matters. Sometimes the stock market matters. But what we really want is to give weight to periods of history that are similar in terms of the characteristics that matter to the outcome that you care about. And so the technique I came up with was using something called the proximity matrix of a random forest. Now, this is so many steps. Oh, a proximity matrix of a random forest. That sounds like something where if I go into a meeting and propose we do that, everybody will be extremely impressed. Absolutely. So I want to know about this a proximity matrix of a random forest. And, and is there an R package for doing that? Absolutely, yes. Yeah, random, uh, random forest package will do that. So if, if you... With, with, with a proximity error? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you just um, so just for the listeners, you've got a uh, a random forest is made up of lots of little trees, and it, you can think of each each of these trees as being a decision rule at each juncture where where two branches come off. We've got a juncture, 
And that juncture splits the data according to one of the covariates. So you might be trying to predict cancer and you put the entire sample up the tree and all those with an age greater than 45 will go down one branch and everyone less than 45 will go down the other. And then men will get split off into another branch and women will go into to another. And we'll go further and further up the tree and there'll be more and more of these splits until we wind up with nodes, ter these terminal nodes. And how a tree predicts is it looks at how many people are in that terminal node and uh, those, if say more than 50% have cancer, then it will predict people in that node to get cancer. Or you might have some different threshold criterion or whatever, but, but the idea is that you... Um, now, of course, you're actually estimating these, these uh, split points. You want to do um, estimate those split points so that you get the most pure nodes. So you're trying to uh, decrease the entropy as, as much as you can in the terminal nodes. You're trying to make similar, similar groups in terms of the outcome. Now, you don't do it on the, the full data set. Each tree in the forest is grown on random set subsets of data. And at each split in the trees, there, um, those only a small proportion of the possible um, covariates are considered for a split. Okay, so that's how a, what a random forest is. What a proximity matrix is, let's say we put Amos, Shosh, and I down every tree. And it's going to feed us. So Shosh, you're like... What kind of tree? We're going down every single tree, and we're going to predict every single one. We're going to predict. Is it like an evergreen? Yep. Like Tarzan. These are elms. Okay. What tree are we on? Elms. Okay. okay. So, so the three of us are on. Well, an no, elm. we we go down lots and lots of different elms. Now, some of them, uh, Amos and I are going to wind up in the same branch, the same terminal node, because we're both, you know, white men who live in New York. Um, sometimes, Josh and I are going to wind up in the same branch because you know we're both non-smoker economists. Sometimes Amos and, and Shosh are going to wind up in the same branch based, based on your uh, lineage, okay? So we've... we've so Smooth. Every, every time... Jesus, James. <laughs> I was wondering how you put that. You know, Trump wins and it all comes out, doesn't it? So, Jews. So each time... My, everything my grandparents said is coming true. <laughs> every time we wind up in the same terminal mode, Amos, your score and mine goes up by one, okay? Now, if there are a thousand trees in the, in the whole forest, you and, you and I can average out our scores over that number of trees, and that gives us a proximity score. But the cool thing about this score is it's the distance between you and I in a feature space, but it's a distance that is not... It's a feature space that's tied to a particular responsive variable. Outcome. So it's a, su it's a supervised distance. Now, it's not a metric because it doesn't satisfy the triangle inequality, I don't think. I think, Josh, you looked at this, didn't you? Mm -hmm. Maybe it does. I don't think it's a metric. But it's, it's a distance, distance measure um, between uh, all the observations in your data set. I think what James means by that is that if you imagined these positions in space, they wouldn't commute. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, but we have a distance between... All of us. Now, what I can do is, if I want to make a prediction for Shosh, what I can do is go to this this proximity matrix, and I know who all the people in that data set are who are similar to Shosh in the ways that matter for the prediction of the outcome, right? And I can do exactly the same thing with time periods in history. So I can I've got this vector, which is today, and the weight that I should give to all periods in history that are similar to today. So maybe I want to give lots of weight to periods you know, eight years after a massive slump or something, okay? 
and maybe those periods contain more information about uh, how variables relate to one another than the last six months. So that, that's the basic idea. Now, this idea is so, so far removed from generative modeling. It's so ad hoc. It's like going to some, one of Valer, um, what's his name, Bowman's, um, you know, who was famous for advocating stepping back from the generative method and, and letting algorithms explore the potential models. So it takes a, a highly non-generative approach and then kind of bolts it on to something that could be maybe considered a generative model. But you're still considering, considering this to be augmented or fake data. And yet it's useful. It's extremely useful. Like I found that you can improve almost all time series models in, in all the types of time series models I used in, in macro by just using a, this weighting vector by giving more weight to similar periods in history. So it's potentially useful. Hmm. The other thing it's good at is working out when there are no periods in history that are very relevant. When you wind up in a lot of terminal nodes that are not shared by many others and many other observations. And that's when you're hmm. really able to step back from your model and, and kind of concede defeat and, hey, the, the model's trying to learn from history, but it's, history is not actually very relevant. Maybe I shouldn't believe in what my model's telling me. And now it's time for... Tools. 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 When we were talking about this last time, James had objected to my use of interactive charts, and I wanted to give you some follow-up, and I have follow-up on two points. The first one is it turns out that I was wrong to be using Solidify because the Solidify functionality has been rolled into, into our Markdown presentations. Oh, has it? Mostly. Has it? Largely. Largely. Uh, only for certain, not all the slide frameworks, but, but some of them. Um, the second point is the demo that I had been working on, we gave that demo last Wednesday. Oh, yeah. How'd it go? We gave it twice. We gave it did a preview for the middle managers uh, and middle managed semi senior managers, and then we did a final presentation for the actual senior managers, including the CTO. Mm. When I played the animation, the room audibly gasped. Audibly gasped. I love when it happens. The in the senior presentation, <sighs> there was on the by the time we were on the second slide, there was a standing ovation. Oh, wow. I missed its rise. So this has <laughs> been a good week for you, is what you're saying. At the end of the, <laughs> that's another topic. At the end of the first version of the presentation, the head data scientist uh, for the customer said it was the best demo he had ever seen. Wow. And at the end of the final presentation, the CTO fist bumped me. Is this about tools or is this about your being a badass? <laughs> the point of this is animation matters, interactive matters, because there was nothing in that presentation that was particularly different information content-wise than what we would do in any other static PowerPoint presentation. We, it was effectively a series of numbers. Mm. Mm. And it was a series of numbers of how, how a, a model had changed over time and what some thresholds might be and some precision recall numbers. But because we did it interactively and in color and with an animation, the folks who were less involved could get emotionally connected to the animation. They could see the little circles getting yeah, bigger yeah. and smaller. And this is why Hans Rosling was, was such a... A cool dude. He really made a lot of the start. I mean, you, um, Amos, you're familiar with Hans Rosling's Gapminder stuff, which your charts are basically using, I think, the same idea or framework. Um, all those bubble charts. If you've not seen them, it's, it's really worth going and watching his TED Talks and playing with Gapminder. Wait, do you, do you really think it's about there's emotional investment in the little circles getting bigger and smaller? I think if people see 
a chart that moves. That moves. It's that the, it there's like an anticipation. Is that what it, what that is? I I think they are able to engage on it in a way that they're not able to engage. Not everybody, but there are some people who are able to engage on a chart that moves or is animated or that is inter interactive in a way that they're not able to engage with a chart mm. that just sits there. Now, you and I and James can look at a chart and just focus on the chart and look at the shape and, and understand the shape. We can even look at a table of numbers and we can get a lot out of it. But there are some people who can't deal with the table of numbers. I mean, they could, but they just don't and who need the chart. And there are some people who will phase out from the chart and what they really need is the interactivity, the motion, something that draws in their attention. They need TV. They don't want to read a book. So do you think it's just an attention thing? Like having something that focuses their attention on a particular part of the chart forces them to try to understand what it means? So if they'd seen like a static snapshot of your chart, they'd see all these dots, but they wouldn't really know that the, that those dots are the focus. But seeing... I, I think there is actually... I think part of it is that. I think part of it is that there really is added information content and explanatory content. The moving bubble chart is something I had actually made for myself because I wanted to understand what was going on in the data. And I'd made it for myself and then decided to share it. But there was another... I've got a question before you continue. So, okay. so, so take your interactive chart that you showed us last time. Mm -hmm. And suppose you just took like three snapshots at different points. You know, the beginning, the middle, and, and the end. Just the snapshots would give you the informational content, right? We're not actually learning very much from seeing the progression of the dots in the in the like cartoon that has a thousand reels versus three reels. The only difference is that the interact the fully interactive one will have a movie playing that'll maybe grasp people's attention or make it easier to see what the transition is. Do you think that there's value in the interactivity itself as like an entertainment or attention grabbing thing? I think there is. I think that, you know, I think that having it move actually does show you something because it shows one of the things that you'll see when you see it in motion that you wouldn't see when you look at it in a static way is that some dots are moving up and some dots are moving down. So between, you know, between slide one and slide two, you would see there's a cloud over here and a cloud over there. But what you wouldn't see is that some points have actually left the cloud yeah, and other yeah. points have been joining it. Sure. And so you do actually see things with the motion. There, there is additional information content. Another of our slides, we showed how precision and recall changed with thresholds. And there was an, a piece of information, there was additional information there because it was interactive. And the additional information was that during the presentation, somebody said, well, if you wanted to achieve the same precision that we had on this prior model, what would that do to everything else? And because the chart was interactive, I could do that. Hmm. And if the chart had been static, I would I would have had to go and look it up. I, I told you last time that I hate all interactive charts, bar humbug. And then I think the next day I tweeted something along the lines of nobody you want to influence is going to be influenced by a, a an interactive chart. <laughs> um, and I still I still kind of believe that. I mean, the kind of people who really need interactivity in order to convince them are not necessarily people I want to convince. <laughs> well, so it's, all, it's costly to convince people. You want to convince people who are going to make the most impact if you convince them. So, yes, I, I, interesting. I do probably, I'm still biased against it. And yet, I was going to say before, Hans Rosling's stuff is so persuasive and such a great illustration of data. It's hard to dispute that it is very, very powerful. I... I have a bias against the kind of sort of or HTML widgets sort of 
world, which is like you should make it interactive just because you can. Um, I think there are some applications where uh, non-interactive charts just are so much better because they get a very clear curated message across, whereas sometimes you, you might need interactivity and, and animation. And now, there's... Did you hear about the Microsoft guy? What's his face? Well, I know that Jim knows. Jim heard about it. The Microsoft guy who's funded his own private data collection. Steve Ballmer. Steve Ballmer. He's the former CEO of Microsoft. Was he CEO or president? The New York Times wrote a glorious article about how he wanted to, to spend his money buying a sports team of some sort. And his wife said, why don't you do something more useful with your life? And he said, charities... There's so many charities getting so much money from lots of rich guys. I want to do something creative. Uh, and so he went in and put together a team of statisticians and economists and data people of various sorts to, as far as I can tell, put together a giant database of all government records. So salaries, where money is spent, as the way it's lauded, it's not available yet, although I have certainly put up my email to be alerted at the moment it is. As far as I could tell, it's just a, a database uh, that's as comprehensive as possible in collecting the way that the government collects money, how much it collects from various sources, and where it spends it. So, what, what do you guys think about that? Do you how do you think that data could be used to to improve our political process? That's that seems to be what Steve Ballmer thinks it'll do. So, I actually um, I was working on a project for two years doing exactly this um, for Australia. Uh, well, sorry, when I say I. So we had some interns. <laughs> so really, really. <laughs> oh, this is awful work. They we literally read through all the budget papers in Australia, and any any expenditure that we meaning the interns. Well, look, so I I took some of the bigger line items, but <laughs> the interns did a lot, and we just filled out these spreadsheets, um, reams and reams of like manual data entry of reading through the the budget papers in Australia. Oh god! Every single lot, every single line item, anything that was greater than I think it was like fifty thousand bucks or something, we'd highlight, and then put it in the the database to actually see where the money went. And we produced some great visualizations of it. This was before MTurk, right? This sounds like a bad use of uh, of highly skilled intern labor. No, this is sadly this was after MTurk. But what it did do, though, um, because when when you're reading through it, you can start to get a narrative. I mean, there there is some value in having like highly skilled people doing manual work when that manual work is also looking at those line items and going, oh, there's this program, oh, these sorts of expenses, oh, that's what they call this. Um, but we, we fleshed out this data set and it was incredible. We With the papers that we wrote based on this data set, um, they've literally changed policy in Australia. They've really helped set the budget narrative. Um, we got several front page pages of the newspaper, national television. But what do you, but what, what concretely, what, what concretely is useful about this? Like other than it being nice to be able to see. One of my biggest kind of spiels about data science is the most valuable thing a data scientist can do is simply state what is. Most people don't know what is. Um, and I'm talking about not even any fancy inference, no model, summary statistics. How much money did we spend? On what programs did we... But why? But what are we going to use that for? Are we going to say, are we going to use this to pinpoint wasteful spending or... Absolutely, yeah. How, how, did, how did this change over time? Which categories of budget spending are growing faster than other categories? And these things, as people did not know, 
and we were able to set the narrative from and weren't able to access right, it because no one had done it Australia's the same size of New York State what, what makes me nervous about this is I think a lot of the effect of this is going to depend on the categories that that they choose to put this the spending and the, and the money in um I mean, one place where I think this might be actually very, a study like this would be very interesting would be this, this continuing debate of why it is that higher education keeps getting so expensive so quickly, because we don't seem to have more professors. The professors don't seem to be making particularly much more money. Tell me about it. But for some reason, the cost of higher education just, just goes up dr- dra- drastically. I mean, it's, I think it's something. F- football coaches and admin stuff. Well, but, but that's the question is, where is the money going? Is it going to football coaches? Is it going to buildings? Is it going to administrator salaries is going to having more administrators. And there's this giant debate about that. And nobody, I think, really has an answer because to have an answer to that, you'd really have to have uh, a very transparent and well-organized data set with transparency into a bunch of different institutions. Yeah. But for, for what Steve Bomber is doing, I mean, I just, were, you know, I, I'm, I'm nervous that a lot of it depends on what you decide to categorize mm. as what. Sure. In terms, of, in terms of interpretation and what can be done with it. Thank you for listening to the Error Term. We will be back in a random number of days drawn from an unknown distribution.